folks, do you feel like everything these days is go, go, go? It's nonstop from work to friends to family and a million pressing issues. Sometimes you just need to take a playoff and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. Hey, it's that time of year in Minnesota again to get out on the lake, go to the cabin, sit back, watch the baseball. Coors Light is the perfect refreshment to chill during these summer months. There's only one beer out there that's made to chill. The mountains on the bottles and cans turn blue when your beer is cold, and that way you know it's time to chill. Hit that reset button with some mountain cold refreshment. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Coors Light is the one you should choose when you need to unwind. When you want to hit the reset button, reach for the beer that is made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Hey everybody, Matthew Collar here. Before we get into the show, we're excited to share an exclusive trailer with you after the show. From Blue Wire Studios comes Golden Goal, Stories of Soccer Legends. Each Monday, two new episodes will take a look at some of soccer's biggest stars and the biggest moments that define their careers, all narrated by Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's Always Cheating Podcast. From Messi to Rapino and many, many more, each episode will focus on historical plays and the personalities that made the sport great. So stay tuned after the episode and check out Golden Goal Stories of Soccer Legends wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome into another episode of Purple Insider. Matthew Collar here, and joining me is Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus to talk quarterbacks. What is up, Steve? Ah, just doing great over here and getting ready for a baby and quarantining and, you know, the whole thing. How are you doing? I know. If we get halfway into this and we have to stop because you are literally having a baby and you have to run to the hospital, then... Uh, We'll do that, uh, but we'll try to talk some quarterbacks in the process, and maybe real quick we could talk about how sad we are about minor league baseball. No minor league baseball this year is the worst thing in the entire world. I, I mean, I don't know if everyone knows that you were a minor league baseball player. I was a minor league baseball play-by-play broadcaster, and uh, there's so much that happens in a minor league baseball season that is weird, that's hilarious, that's super fun, and I was thinking July 4th, I would have been in the minor league stadium watching the, uh, you know, the fireworks and all that, the whole town shows up, and I've been missing those moments as much as anything else with sports. It's definitely sad, and I feel, I really feel for the players, because the players have a, minor league players have a very short shelf life, much like NFL players. I think fans, they they see the glamour, right? They see the guaranteed contracts at the major league level, just like they see the superstars at the NFL level. But right now, I think the players at the NFL level that are a little worried are the guys that have a three-year shelf life, a four-year shelf life, and they, they need another year to play, just like a minor league player might need one more. They might only have one more year, one more shot before there's another draft class and more prospects before they get released like I did three times. So, um, you know, I feel for the players in, in that from a minor league standpoint. 
And there is something special, too, at the level that I was doing of guys who were good college players but weren't huge prospects, and this was their one summer as a pro ball player. Yep. And it was sort of like, hey, remember these moments because you're probably not going to make it to the bigs, and uh, a lot of guys missing out on that things. Their families would fly into this tiny little town <laughs> to come to a couple of games and stuff like that. So um, hopefully we get right back on the horse next year with minor league baseball. But we got to talk QBs. You guys, you and Sam Monson on your podcast did an awesome episode about – how you figure out if someone is good at quarterbacking. And I love the place that you started, which is when a quarterback has to throw or drop back more than 40 times, how well do they perform? And no surprise, Tom Brady is good at this. Shocker. Like Tom Brady is great when uh, everything is on his shoulders. But there's so many quarterbacks, Steve, that are in that middle group. So you got your Brady, your Rodgers from a couple years ago, your Breeze that are just so much better than everybody else in circumstances where it's all on them. But Kirk Cousins seems to fall in the middle of just about any category we ever use to figure out <laughs> how quarterbacks rank. So yep. what did you find with Cousins when it came to looking into what happens when the Vikings or Washington have to rely on him? Because I think this year we might see more of that with a lot of new pieces on defense. Yeah, I mean, just to back it up a little bit, I think when you're evaluating quarterbacks, it's just such a fascinating position because clearly it's the most important in all of sports. but it is the most dependent sport, I think, as far as production goes compared to other sports. You know, a baseball player has one-on-one interactions with the pitcher. And, uh, you know, basketball, you know, you, you shoot your shot, right? Whatever it might be. But, like, obviously football, quarterback production, they have the most say in how well they play. But they really need receivers or they really need blocking. And those other things all come together. And so when you can split things out in different ways, I think we all realize this happens all the time in analysis, you say, uh, this guy had a great game, but, hey, they ran play action 20 times, and it was a bad defense, and you you add these five layers of context. And and I think sometimes it's true, you know, and I thought in this analysis, uh, sometimes quarterbacks feel like they're protected by the running game, by play action, or whatever it is. And the idea here is, like, what what about when they're on their own? What if they do actually have to throw the ball 40 times a game? Um, And I, I do think the analysis did a good job of separating the Brady's Breeze, Rodgers, and Peyton Manning's of the world from the rest of the quarterbacks. But I do think all of those mid-tier quarterbacks, all those middle-of-the-pack rankings lists that Kirk Cousins lands on, um, he did show up pretty well in this in this number, in this you know percentage of games that you actually graded well when you had the ball in your hands more often than not. And I think it does actually tell a little bit a little bit about style. You know, Dak Prescott was not good. Uh, at these games Philip Rivers wasn't good at these games I wasn't expecting that but Eli Manning was so I do think you just you glean some insights as far as guys who are like a little bit more aggressive willing to take chances might have some ugly games in there but they might also give you a chance to win and I think believe it or not Cousins and his check down uh, reputation has had some gunslingery type of games through the years and I think that's why he landed you know better than expected on this list. So I looked up, and I, and I know that analytics people hate this, but I looked up the win-loss record when he had to throw at least, I used 39 passes because he had like three games of 39. I thought, can I yeah. really, can I increase the sample size a little? And he was 5-17-2. and two. So Because, of yeah. course, Kirk Cousins has two ties mixed in there. It's the most Kirk Cousins-y course, stat. Right. Uh, but, you know, when you're having to throw 40 times, it often means you are down. And I'll right. give you an example 
there was a game against New Orleans where PFF grades Kirk Cousins' performance extremely well, but they got way down in the game, and he's putting up a lot of great throws, and they come back and they lose by one score. He ends up with a very good grade, but you lose the game. And uh, a lot of guys are about 500 who are the really good quarterbacks at this, but I wonder how we balance that of the PFF grade might have been good, but you're playing down and the opponent is not being as aggressive defensively. They're playing a lot of cover two and a lot of shell that's a lot of allowing you to throw those underneath passes or even get down the field a little, but take 10, 12, 14 play drives to get there and not have enough time to win the game. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some of that that um... – Again, with quarterbacking, because there's so much dependency on a million different things, no analysis is going to be perfect, which is why I liked looking at this just from uh, looking at the quarterbacks just from this particular angle for that particular podcast. Um, I do think there's something to, because you're the quarterback, though, you you dictate how you play as well when it comes to these games, right? So um, I think Cousins, rightfully, though, does he play well in these games? Yeah, but does he rightfully get this perception of maybe maybe it's not checkdowns, but it's like, are you taking that chance all the time? And this is where I struggle with Kirk Cousins analysis. And I used to struggle with Alex Smith analysis too. I have like the five games off the top of my head where Alex Smith showed that he could carry a team. It was 2011 against the Saints in the playoffs. And 2013, he went head to head with Peyton Manning. And 2015 against Andrew Luck. He has these games where he makes these great throws, but the overall body of work of Alex Smith is a little bit more on the conservative side, very conservative side. He'll put up decent numbers, but he's not going to go win a game for you. But I saw that he was capable. I think that's where Cousins is. He doesn't have the feel for being aggressive, as aggressive as he needs to be in some of these games, I don't think. And, and you know, maybe it shows up well statistically or the grades end up okay because he doesn't make a ton of bad throws, but he's just missing – when he needs to be that aggressive. Aaron Rodgers has a little bit of that too. And I think that's why he hasn't made comebacks at the same level as a Brady or whatever it might be. And um, I'm one of the few analytics people who will allow win loss record because I do think using Brady as an example, who I all, who I think is the best by far, because this is one of my arguments, his win loss record, when they give up 21 plus points, 28 plus points defensively, when he has to throw the ball 40 times, 50 times, he is in a different world as far as win-loss record. And while you don't just judge quarterbacks by win-loss record, I do think when you get to that level, fourth quarter comeback opportunities, Brady's the best. He know, Quarterback dictates how they play the game, and I think that's part of what makes Brady great and separates quarterbacks when they know they have to be more aggressive or know they need to be more conservative. I think Brady, Peyton, those guys have that down. And I know that you and I have discussed this a little bit in previous shows that we've done together about win-loss record, but I think it's just a great starting point. And then you ask, sure. all right, why is this? So Kirk Cousins, since he became a starter in 2015, is 42-35-1, I think. So it's a little above a 500 quarterback. You go back through all your journeymen, your classic journeyman quarterbacks, your Kyle Orton, your Gus Farratt, they're always 500. Even my pale Sage Rosenfels on the show, he didn't start a ton. He's a 500 quarterback. And then you have your guys who completely failed in the league, who just lost and lost and lost and lost and have awful records and could never be real starters. 
And if you just chunked them that way, you'd probably end up with a lot of results that were right, honestly. Right. So if someone is a little above 500, I, I like to look at it and say, well, how can they be better? Like, what was it that held them back? Uh, is it something that can change from the scheme? With the Vikings, for example, Kubiak and Stefanski come in and they make a lot of changes from what John Filippo did the year before. Suddenly, Kirk Cousins is a better quarterback across the board. That would have been one of those things where you say, why was he a 500 quarterback? Well, that might be one reason. Or they did have one of the easier schedules in the league that also plays into this. Um, so I, I'm, I've, I've always been with you that why would you throw out something that is actually the goal of the sport, which is to win and the person who is worth the most wins above replacement. Um, yeah. I, I, I wonder what you – so you guys put out the um, QB annual every year, and it's amazing. It's just got so many detailed stats that I like to cover my body in as soon as it comes out and write like <laughs> five articles about. But I want to know which ones are sustainable, like which ones we can look at and say, all right, we know what he did last year, but next year this is what he will continue to do well from all of the data that you put out. Yeah, so I'm, it's funny because I'm actually working on some of this stuff for NFL teams, and, you know, we give them, all of our NFL clients get this massive database of information, and I'm trying to sift through that for them in the, you know, next product that we're building for them, and we're calling it the stable, unstable page, and just saying, here are the things. I'll pull up, I'll pull up Kirk's page as we're going here, but um, the, the things that are stable from year to year, the things that you want to look at, and then the things that will tend to fluctuate. And I thought the Kirk Cousins story from two years ago is fascinating because he took he was really awesome in the first half of 2018, and he took a step back. And on our podcast, we said, man, here's the number that's going to make him drop off in the second half. His play under pressure was ridiculous. He had the third-best passer rating under pressure, and that's just the thing that's not as sustainable um, from year to year. So I do think that the things that you can – generally bank on going forward and i'll look at cousins from say just like a two-year sample even so um even beyond what's in the qb annual you want to avoid negatively graded throws so the quarterback has way more say in his bad stuff than he does on the good stuff and what i do like is when we come up with a number or you know the numbers say something that matches things intuitively because again how many times do we go back to a quarterback and say well his supported cast was better and his play caller was better your supporting cast is, is not going to make you throw the ball more accurately, but it's going to give you more opportunities to throw the ball and hit a guy in stride or whatever it might be and hit an open uh, player. So your positively graded throws tend to fluctuate. So from a cousin standpoint, he was well above average in a lot of the – he's been above average in the, the stable stuff, clean pocket grade. Uh, early downgrade is actually way more stable than, say, third downgrade, um, even though you, most analysts go back and say, let me see how this quarterback did on third down. But that's the time yeah, the sample size is smaller. And, uh, you know, Carson Wentz in his MVP year, uh, caliber year in 2017 was ridiculous on third down. And that was just one of those things we said, unsustainable. And he came back down to earth the next year. So uh, Cousins is in the 95th percentile at just avoiding negatively graded throws the last couple of years. That, that means you could probably bank on that next year. Like, and, and part of it is maybe being a little bit more conservative, having easier throws, fewer opportunities to miss. But it's a good number um, as far as, you know, banking on that being similar next year. And he's actually on the lower end of positively graded throws in our system, meaning you give him more opportunities, more open receivers, better playmakers. You might actually get more production there. So Cousins does show well in a lot of the stable metrics going forward. Before we get back to the conversation, want to remind you to go to sodastick.com to get your original Minnesota sports-inspired goods. 
Baseball is back, and SodaStick just launched its latest partnership with Hormel Foods and the Tommy Watkins Foundation to pay homage to the Hormel Row of Fame. It debuted in the Metrodome in 1992, and though it's been long retired, you have an opportunity to check out the latest t-shirt called the Wiener Winner. Great for lunch, great for dinner. You remember how the song goes. For every t-shirt sold, Hormel Foods will donate $10 up to $10,000 to Tommy Watkins Foundation's backpack program supporting Twin Cities youth. We're going to hook you up also with free shipping for your Wiener Winner shirt. Use promo code PURPLEINSIDER for free shipping. That's sodastick.com, S-O-T-A, S-T-I-C-K.com, original Minnesota sports-inspired goods, code PURPLEINSIDER for free shipping. I think that really speaks to the idea that Cousins is what you put around him. Because if people are open, he will find them. If he has time to throw, he will throw. But there, there's this other part of Cousins, though, that where he invites pressure on himself. And you mentioned the pressure rate. It seems like his is pretty stable outside of maybe 2016 where they had uh, an unbelievable offensive line in Washington. But this idea of holding on to the ball too long, which is one of those everyone who's watched Kirk Cousins is going, throw the ball, get rid of it, what are you doing? Uh, especially after Sam Bradford who was like, check down five yards, let's get moving here, um, You know, get it out of my hands. I, I wonder what it says about that and his lack of mobility because PFF had him as – the dead last running quarterback in the league. And it, I, I do feel like the running value is separating some other uh, quarterbacks, you know, from Kirk Cousins. So how, how do you kind of factor that in when you're deciding how good each quarterback is? How much? They're yeah, it, it's a great question. I think, you know, when, when Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold were coming out, say what you want about what they've been at the NFL level. I looked at the two. I'm like, oh, they're not that different as passers. But, man, I think I trust Darnold making plays outside the pocket and with his legs far more than I do Rosen. And I do think for a lot of guys that aren't, unless you're great, like Joe Burrow could be great from the pocket and he can run a little bit, but he could be great from the pocket. Unless you're great, you need some sort of mobility, right? Or, or else you are going to be kind of stuck in that middle tier. And I do think that's where Cousins is. And, um, you know, my buddy Sam always talks about there. He just has this – something happens with him where, you know, sometimes you look at a guy and you say, that, there's a natural playmaker. When you watch Patrick Mahomes, natural playmaker, spatial awareness. He knows what's happening. Where Cousins just has a few game, few plays per year where you're like, what's he doing? The swing pass backwards against the Jets a couple of years ago. He had one. was maybe the Lions. Last year he threw it right into a guy's gut, laid in the down, and um, he got away with it. You know, so there's just – a few of those all the time. I think that is the bigger issue with Cousins. I think from a macro point of view, if he can't create with his legs, I look at the way the Vikings quarterbacks have played under Zimmer through the years, and they've had a guy that ranked in the top 10 at avoiding turnover-worthy plays in our numbers. They take care of the ball from Teddy to Bradford to Keenum. And I thought the idea of bringing Cousins in was hopefully going to be them saying, let's be a little bit more aggressive. I thought we saw it at times last year, but I thought that they showed you can take a Keenum or Bridgewater or Bradford and play ball control and trust your defense and all that stuff. But I thought that Cousins, because, man, he can throw, throws the post really well. He could throw the cover two shot. Like, he makes some decent downfield throws. I, my thought was maybe you live with a few more turnovers from Cousins and let him be aggressive down the field I don't know if we've always seen that through the years um, and I do think because there's no running value with cousins and there's a you know there's a few of those brain farts in the in the pocket and all that stuff you actually do want to 
if those are going to happen, you might as well get some chunk plays out of it that aren't just schemed up. The scheme was great last year, rollouts and deep passes. They were there. Cousins hit them and everything. But, man, let him be more aggressive, and I think that's kind of where you need the offense to be able to take that next level. So I think if Stephon Diggs was listening to you say that, he would say, yes, Steve, yes, <laughs> throw the ball. And that was the uh, difference between Case Keenum and what we've seen from Kirk Cousins is Keenum would just not care at all and heave it up into Adam Thielen or Stephon Diggs, and they would oftentimes come down with it. In 2017, they came down with everything. And that's been part of this. When Bridgewater succeeds, that's when Diggs is starting to emerge. And then Bradford has close to, if not a career year, that's when Thielen and Diggs are very good. And then we've seen them amplify quarterback numbers throughout the entire time they were here. Now Diggs is gone. And I wonder how you think that that changes the formula for Kirk Cousins, because if we're going off your PFF offensive line rankings, that doesn't look like that's going to be a whole heck of a lot different. Yeah, they still have enough question marks up front across the interior as far as pass protection goes. Putting all line rankings together is a tough process because the Vikings had the third highest percentage of positively graded run blocks last year. So, like, they were giving the running backs opportunities, but they also had the second highest percentage of negatives in the run game. So they were giving them some bad opportunities too. You probably, you see that as a fan, right? Like, Hey, look at this great job by the line. Next play, Dalvin's getting hit in the backfield four yards. But um, from a pass pro standpoint, Riley Lee, Riley Reed, just, eh, you know, Brian O'Neill's been pretty good. Interior has been a question. So yeah, the pass protection isn't great. Luckily the scheme protects them at least a little bit. Yeah. I think my concern with the pass game is I really think you win in the NFL by, making life difficult on opposing defenses, right? Making them have to cover, um, you know, at least three guys that they have to account for on a given play. The Vikings have a good pair of tight ends, but not having Stephon Diggs, replacing him essentially with Justin Jefferson is a massive question mark. Now, I, I, think, I think Jefferson can be a pretty good player. His skill set is very Adam Thielen-like. You know, you, you could probably put him in the slot and crafty route runner. Uh, Thielen's great against press. Justin Jefferson, question as far as press goes, right? So there's just more question marks here where I think in the NFL, you you really want to have three or four playmakers that you could choose from on a given play because that's like defenses shouldn't be staying up late at night trying to figure out how to stop a running back. You just drop a safety into the box, right? Even though, no matter who the running back is, you just add another player. But like if you're going to try to defend the Dallas Cowboys with Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup and CeeDee Lamb, you got to put some thought into that. I don't have to put a ton of thought into Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson and BC Johnson, Tajay Sharp, you know, it, so that would be my question mark with the Vikings. How do you stop Dalvin? You bring, bring an extra safety in the box and you're probably going to be okay more often than not. So that's where I think the Vikings take a little bit of a step back from a pass game standpoint, unless Jefferson is awesome right away. My sense is that the receiving weapons you have have a heck of a lot more to do with your success as a quarterback than offensive line. Even though every sports talk radio caller that ever called into any station I ever worked with would not agree with that. Cousins doesn't have any time to throw, even though he held onto the ball longer than anyone in the league. But right. what is the gap there? Because, I mean, the Vikings have had, in terms of receivers, about as good as you can get. A Pro Bowl tight end, two Pro Bowl caliber wide receivers who are consistently top 20 in your rankings. And Diggs is a guy that every young receiver is studying his tape, figuring out how to run routes. You take somebody away from that, you get more double teams for Adam Thielen. But, you know, I wonder if, like, what the gap would be between how your offensive line performs and how that impacts a quarterback versus the weapons you have. 
I think it definitely leans toward the weapons. Um, it, it is one of the tough things, I think, for fans to wrap their head around is that uh, the receiver getting open protects the quarterback more than the left tackle, right? And so what we always say on the podcast is creep back toward average, right? So if you have a disastrous, terrible offensive line, if you could just rank in the middle tier, it, then you can at least get by if you have good receivers. I thought um, the Raiders a couple of years ago, they had to decide. I can't remember who the tackle was on the board. Well, they could have taken a tackle or they could have drafted Amari Cooper. And I remember thinking back saying, this is the type of decision an NFL team comes up against. Do I give my young second-year quarterback a great wide receiver who can get open, make life easier for him? Or do I get him a, you know, the cornerstone left tackle? And there's arguments for both. I thought Laramie Tunsil improved the Houston Texans pass protection immensely last year, but it was because they were coming from the worst left tackle in the NFL. If they just had a Riley Reef, so to speak, and then they upgraded to Laramie Tunsil, you wouldn't feel it as much. So it depends on how bad you are. Just don't be a disaster on the offensive line. Just, just don't give up pressure on 40, 45% of dropbacks. Just don't uh, give a guy zero time to throw on third down. Then as long as you, have, you, you would prefer to have a receiver who gets open and not just one, you want two or three or four. Again, you want to make your team as uncoverable as possible. That is how you make a quarterback great. And I think you take, you know, the high-end quarterbacks, the Tom Brady's of the world, they'll produce no matter what. But if you have a full year of a Gronk and an Edelman or Randy Moss, then you have Hall of Fame seasons. That's Patrick Mahomes right now. And then you have the Andy Dalton 2015 season. You have Mitch Trubisky in 2018. You have guys who don't even play great, but the production is great because of their uh, receivers, which is, again, far more important than their offensive line as far as putting up passing production, which should be the goal of your offense. Right. Uh, and I think about with the offensive line and when we're trying to value these different things, that one size doesn't always fit all, as we see from Cousins, because the interior rush gets him more than I think other quarterbacks. If you interior rush Deshaun Watson, he'll just mosey over there real fast and find somewhere to throw it. Uh, but Kirk Cousins likes to stay in one spot, gets that pressure right. in his face. That's when you see higher inaccurate throws. We saw that against Chris Jones in Kansas City, where Jones dominated that game. Same thing happened uh, in San Francisco. Their interior pressure in the playoff game was incredible, and there wasn't much he could do. Uh, before I let you go, Steve, and go you know, grab your baby out of the womb, uh, <laughs> make a big-time catch, I guess you would say. Yes. Um, that was inappropriate, and I'm sorry for that. That's all right. Give me – based on the numbers that you're looking at for 2020, assuming we're having a season, I'm going forward that way. Yes. Uh, a riser and a faller for quarterbacks, somebody that you look at the numbers and you say, you know what, this really should be better. Or it was scheme, supporting cast, whatever it might be, for someone who should be better. Or, hey, this person was really propped up. You know, 2017 Case Keenum, even the Vikings were looking at it going, hmm, don't think that's going to keep happening over the long term. And, of course, it didn't with him. So give me a riser and a faller quarterbacks based on your numbers. Yeah, so I think Ryan Tannehill's the obvious regression candidate. I think no matter which way you slice it, you can just look at passer rating and say, well, it's not going to have a 117.5 in the regular season. No matter how you slice it, it's going to be tough. And Tannehill, uh, when you look at just the last decade, a guy who we talked about positively graded throws, he was number one last year. He has never been close to that. So that is uh, supporting tasks dictated. Now, they're all pretty much coming back. So could he duplicate it? Yes. But positively graded throws, they still tend to fluctuate a little bit. So I expect Tannehill, that last year, was he was awesome, but not in line with the rest of his career. I think going the other way, let me just take a look here and see. I mean, I think 
the interesting thing here is I look at a guy like Derek Carr, and I, I it's not so much that he played better than he should have last year, but it, it's this aggressiveness thing. We saw Matthew Stafford go from three years of one of the lowest average depth of target, depth of completion, and it's like, come on, Stafford, you've got a cannon for an arm. There is nobody more fun to watch, unless you're an NFC North fan, than Stafford for like three games a year. And all of a sudden he comes out, averaging like four more yards per attempt from a target standpoint, and he puts up huge numbers before he gets hurt. I want to see Carr make that move. And I don't know that he will. We'll see. But I think having Henry, Henry Ruggs and that speed could give him that ability. I could see Carr, if he's more aggressive, putting up better numbers, um, maybe not this year, but in the next couple of years, if they can have Ruggs, have Darren Waller, add some more playmakers there. He would be the guy – I'm more asking for a playing style change because I think you need that. Derek Carr is a talented quarterback. You don't need to have him playing like Alex Smith. I wonder if there ever strikes a feeling for Derek Carr in a way maybe like there did with Alex Smith in his last year. I mean, I don't think he ever talked about it, but with Mahomes behind him knowing he was done in KC, he was just like, let's throw it. And he was great at it. I mean, he had an unbelievable year. And at some point, Derek Carr has to realize if he doesn't have a winning season and he's not playing well, his coach has all the control over this entire franchise, and they're just going to go out and get somebody else. I wonder if that pressure ever compels him to start hucking it down the field more. But he had about the worst wide receivers in the league last they year, so I'm not sure how much he could do there. They were bad. The difference, though, is going to be in the head coaches, right? You have Andy Reid in Kansas City drafting a quarterback that, you watch him in practice, you're like, oh, gosh, this guy looks like a future Hall of Famer. Andy Reid wants to score points, and he's aggressive. I think John Gruden just wants to avoid turnovers. That's when he starts glaring at you, and I think that is why his quarterbacks, yeah, they tend to play a little bit tight. And, uh, you know, Carr wasn't even going down the field when they were down 20. You know, Vikings fans talk about Cousins. Oh, maybe he's not aggressive enough. Like, go watch a Raiders game when they're down 20, and he's checking down left and right or throwing the ball away on fourth down. So I think he's talented. He's very good. But, man, he just uh, – to chuck it down the field a little bit more. Yeah, we saw that against the Vikings. I think Waller had like 23 catches um, (laughs) underneath checkdowns when they were down by 20 points. Uh, Right. Steve, your podcast with Sam Monson is one of my favorites. I'm always listening to that while I'm going jogging or or whatever else, playing hoops outside with the headphones on. So I appreciate your guys' hard work and putting together a great show and everything you do at PFF, man. Uh, PFF underscore Steve is where you can follow him if you don't already. Um, Thanks for coming on, and, and great to have you on the new show. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you having me. Hey, before we get back to the conversation, I want to remind you that sports are coming back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. There's no better place to start than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight, or check out odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your favorite team to come back. Bet Online has future odds on win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out our daily simulations of Madden NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet Online, your online wagering experts. Okay, now it is time for another version of five questions with intern Paul. What is going on, intern Paul? Not much, Matt. Just recovering from Fourth of July weekend and hoping we can have some training camp to start talking about soon and some football to look forward to. So that's got my fingers crossed. 
We are very close. We are in the final march toward training camp and holding our breath that it's actually going to happen. And if these other sports can get into their training camps and not have it be a complete disaster, that's going to give me a lot more confidence. But that is not one of your questions is how nervous no. I am about training no. camp because it's about a 9 out of 10 at the moment. <laughs> but I think, I think we're going to be okay. I think this is going to happen. So kick it off. What is your first question of five questions with intern Paul? Well, one of the questions that Shirley will have if training camp and hopefully when training camp starts is along that defensive line. There's some spots open for some guys who haven't totally proven themselves. They've, there's some rookies that could make a difference there. So I've got a couple names and I want you to tell me who seems most likely to carve out a role. So we've got James Lynch, rookie, obviously, who was picked. And then Jalen Holmes, Jaleel Johnson, two guys who haven't done much since they since they've gotten here. And then Hercules. Mata'afa, who always seems to, in training camp, generate some headlines, but we're not, we haven't really seen it on the field. So of those four, who do we see carving out a role? I think that the most likely for this year, even though being a rookie in the NFL this season in particular is going to be challenging, James Lynch has the best chance to carve himself out a role because last year we saw Stephen Weatherly really take on that interior rushing third down situational type of role. And he left and signed with the Carolina Panthers for, I think a four year deal, $12 million. And that spot is wide open. Lynch was one of the best pass rushers in college football. And really when you look at how many sacks he put up last season, it's one of the best single seasons ever by a pass rusher in college. And yes, he did drop to the fourth round. I think that's because he's a little bit of a tweener, but that's always worked for this situation. With Weatherly, he was more of a defensive end, even an outside linebacker in college, and here he is rushing over the guard having success. We saw that from Brian Robison. We saw it from Tom Johnson, these guys who became situational rushers, and Lynch profiles the best for that. I think that they saw the same thing in Jalen Holmes a couple of years ago, but they wanted to move him from defensive end to defensive tackle, same as Lynch, but he didn't have the production that Lynch had. In fact, he had almost no production in college, and then that's shown up in the NFL. Now, Mata Afa was very productive in college like Lynch, but does not have the body like James Lynch does. He is undersized, and I know he tweeted out a picture of his scale saying that he weighed 289 pounds. That's great. But he's only six foot one, and if you don't have the quickness of someone like Aaron Donald, you don't have that crazy, crazy burst off the line of scrimmage, then it's going to be really difficult to beat guards and centers in the NFL if you're undersized and you aren't a complete freak of nature. I don't have super high expectations for Mata Afa or Holmes. And Jaleel Johnson, I think he can make the team, but in just a similar role of what he was doing. It shows you, since they spent $27 million on Michael Pierce, that they did not feel confident in turning a nose tackle role over to Jaleel Johnson. I think there's a, a, an outside chance he gets cut, but more likely he's just in that rotation once again. And then probably this will likely be, I think, unless he has a big year as a rotational player, probably his last year with the Vikings is just someone who comes in when there's an injury like he's been the last two years. Yeah, as long as James Lynch can – learn the playbook and I know that's a big if and can just get you know just feeling ready and comfortable then I just that production I feel like that can translate best to those three guys who haven't had a lot of production so far with the Vikings um next question is we're past the 2020 season so it's always time for people to look at their decade teams all decade and so I was I saw a, a photo of some standings that just accumulated everyone's standings in the 2010 to 2020 
obviously Patriots were ahead at 125 and 35. And that got me thinking, who was the best team in the last decade, excluding the Patriots? So who has had that sustained success? Sustained success, sorry. Um, so who was the best NFL team of the last decade in your mind? That is not the Patriots. Um, I am Correct. going to, yeah, I'm going to go with probably the Seattle Seahawks. And I know that of late, the Seahawks have not been the same as they were when they were a number one defense year in and year out. But I think they had four number one defenses in a row in terms of points against. That's extremely difficult to do. They should have had two Super Bowls. They had the 2013 team is probably the best team of the decade because they were one of the best passing games and the number one defense in the NFL. They've had a top three quarterback for a large part of the decade, which would be a huge factor in my mind. And even when they've had down years, they've still been in the playoffs or still had good seasons. They missed the playoffs, I think, one year and were 10-6 and six or 9-7, and seven, and that was a, a catastrophe for them to miss the playoffs. So they would probably be my pick. Um, because I don't think you could pick a team that doesn't have a Super Bowl in this decade if you were going to pick um, New Orleans, won theirs in 2009, right? So you can't pick New Orleans. They've been great, a, a lot of stretches throughout. And uh, Baltimore does have a Super Bowl. Um, maybe they get in this conversation. Kansas City with the Super Bowl maybe gets in this conversation too. Those are teams that are that are there the entire time. Uh, but I don't know if anybody's got a better resume than Seattle, do they? No, the only other one that you didn't mention, I guess, would be the Green Bay Packers. They had one right at the beginning of the decade that they've had some sustained success. And I think the only one, they've just gone against the Seahawks so many times, and the Seahawks seem to get the better of them in the playoffs. So that's, I'd agree with you, Seahawks get the edge there. Uh, Third question, transitioning to this season, the Titans just announced on Monday that they will allow season ticket holders to opt out of the 2020 season. I've seen some chatter online about, even Vikings fans interacting with each other about whether they'd feel comfortable, whether they'd want to go to games. Some were saying, well, you know, if there's more space, I like that. But then they don't get the atmosphere that they'd normally get. So if you were a fan, you had season tickets, would you want to attend NFL games or would you want to, you know, roll over your ticket package to next year? I think that whatever the safer route is, is always the one that you want to go here, isn't it? I mean, it's one year out of your life to just sit back and watch the TV broadcast like every other sports is going to have. It is certainly weird. I've watched some Korean baseball on ESPN, and it's odd with the cutouts and, and the stuffed animals that they've put in the stands. They've got cheerleaders and masks. It's super weird. I mean, it's something like totally dystopian about watching it. But uh, rather than being inside, especially with a dome, being on the inside atmosphere, I would want to just kick my season tickets uh, to the future. A lot of people, I think, have looked at COVID and said, oh, well, you know, it's not that big a deal or something like that. And that might be the reason that we are in the place that we are unsure of whether we're actually going to have football or not or any of these sports that are going to work is because too many people have been lax about it. Now, again, uh, not any, any type of doctor or epidemiologist or anything else. I would say for outdoor stadiums, it does seem like if you had people who were willing to take the precautions, wear the masks, distance within the stadium, and be outdoors, that there's a very low chance of passing it around since we see uh, you know, protests and things like that, protesters wearing masks and not sharing it like crazy. The odds are probably pretty low, but if you're a Vikings fan, 
indoors, I don't know. I think I think that's a really hard decision if they're even going to let fans come in at all. But I personally err on the side of caution and stay in my house all the time. Yeah, that's where I'm at. But I guess my biggest thing when I go to games is the atmosphere. And if, you know, they're only 25%, 50%, it's like you're not getting that atmosphere. You're getting a better viewing experience usually on television. So I'd rather just wait the year, not worry about, uh, did that person cough to my left? Like, what's going on? And just stay home and watch it. And I'm sure not pay all that money to be there and not get the full experience. The, the skull um, chant would be a lot less <laughs> moving, I'm sure, if you're in the stands when it's just like, wait, can I hear those people that are across the stadium? Uh, I will say that if the NFL is going to allow people inside of stadiums, you know that they're going to take extreme measures when it comes to the safety. So, it's probably, if everyone is required to wear a mask, it's probably going to be okay. It's just me personally. I don't even go on boats because I feel like it's a little too dangerous out on boats. I am very risk averse, so I would probably, you know, back off myself. Yeah, I'd recognize that level of school chant because at my old high school, they kind of ripped it off and did it with cats because we were the wild cats. And (laughs) We didn't win a football game in my time there, so there were a lot of cathartic cats chants. So I, Let's I would be used go to cats. <laughs> yep, I'd, I'd be used to that. Um, speaking of stadiums, Amazon recently bought naming rights to a stadium in Seattle that they're going to use for their new NHL team and their WNBA teams to play in, and they named it the like the Climate Change Arena. I don't remember the exact name for it, but if you could name a stadium, anything you want what would you name your stadium? Well, I will say that my favorite naming rights is probably the Yum Center in uh, Louisville, <laughs> right? Isn't the I, I forget the whole name of it, but calling it the Yum Center is delicious sounding and wonderful. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I would probably, I am a huge fan, having grown up in Buffalo, New York, of chicken wings. So I might just take, if I could pick anyone to be my naming rights sponsor, Duff's Wings in Buffalo and make them, you know, the the Duff's Wings center and that everyone inside would be required to eat wings if you were going to come to a game. I would probably go with something like that. I mean, naming rights are always a a fun thing or kind of a bizarre thing sometimes. And I, I personally also love the bowl games. And I, what was the one, the, um, there's a there's a bowl game that is particularly funny that isn't going to happen anymore this year. So um, that that's un, uh, unfortunate. I, oh, the Beef O'Brady Bowl. That's the one. <laughs> the Beef O'Brady Bowl is no longer going to happen, I think. But that would be my other one, is I would pick them up and make my stadium the Beef O'Brady Stadium. It's just super football. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for absurd stadium names. I think there's the Smoothie King Center oh, yeah. or something. New Orleans. Yep. New Orleans, the Pelicans. So. Anything that is absurd and you could maybe have a t-shirt, t-shirt, you know, Target just really doesn't do it for me. U.S. Bank, I, I want to get out there, get outlandish with them. Final question. Um, and we've talked a bunch about how far Xavier Rhodes fell the last couple of years and a little bit about how Linval Joseph kind of dipped in production. And so I was wondering, last year we saw those large drop-offs. Are there any current Vikings that maybe a year from now we're looking back and saying, wow, he fell? quite a bit this season it is a uh, remarkably different team in terms of age last year there would have been a lot more candidates for this and some of them what like you said with Xavier Rhodes would have come to fruition I also would have said last year Everson Griffin he played pretty well 
Uh, Linval Joseph, he fell off quite a bit from where he was in 2017. With this year's roster, it's a lot harder. And the names that you're able to throw out there for players who are older, if they don't play well, it's going to be an extremely long season. And that starts with Harrison Smith. I didn't see any signs of Harrison Smith dropping off last year. If you look at all the PFF grades and everything else, he's a top three safety in the NFL, as he has been for a very long time. And I think that he's going to get overlooked for the Hall of Fame, but will someday deserve it. I would not bet on him falling off at any point this year. But you just look at the guys who are a little bit on the older side, guys who are getting into 30. The best candidate for this, probably Riley Reef. Um, you know, he's been the guy that all Vikings fans want to trade or move or get rid of. Now, last year, when you look at his overall performance, he's a middle-of-the-pack offensive lineman. And his contract that he signed, that huge deal a couple of years ago, for as much as they've gotten out of him in playing time and him being exactly a mid-pack tackle, it hasn't been a disaster of a deal like some other ones that they've made. But he has always had these nagging injuries. And when someone's getting to that 30 range and they've got nagging injuries in the past, you always look for a potential drop-off. The one that would be a complete nightmare would be Adam Thielen. If Adam Thielen dipped in his play after last year with the injuries, and again, like Harrison Smith, I do not expect this. Uh, I expected it with Xavier Rose. I do not expect this with Harrison Smith or with uh, Adam Thielen. But if Adam Thielen had more injuries and he started to show signs of aging, I don't expect it because he doesn't have a ton of mileage on his body for his entire career. His first couple of years are spent on the practice squad and then as a special teamer. But that one would be disastrous if the Vikings had to rely on a rookie, on B.C. Johnson, on Chad Beebe, Tajay Sharp. If, if these had to be your weapons for Kirk Cousins, that could be a problem. But other than that, I mean, it's such a young roster. There's nobody else that you point to and go, uh-oh, I'll give you one other one. And again, I would not expect this either. But if Anthony Barr loses one step, it's a problem. If he, he Right now, he's still really fast for his size. He's way above average size for an NFL linebacker, 6'5", 250 pounds, and can run a 4'6". So that that is a unique specimen of a human being in terms of his physical play. But if he lost a step and suddenly became kind of average speed for what he does, then considering how much he's getting paid, that could be a real problem. But I don't know. Am I missing somebody here? I feel like everybody else is either in their prime or is uh, a rookie or, you know, I, I can't yeah. think of any other players who would be potential for drop-off. I had two. Um other than what you said, one Kyle Rudolph, I guess, would be oh, one that you sure. could think yeah. of. I think last year we were wondering that a couple games in, and then his production saw an uptick. And I think with Kubiak, you'd think he'd be in the best system to continue what he's doing, even as an old tight end. But just another year for him, that could be one. And then just another not fun one because we don't want anyone to drop off. But I guess a disastrous one, that's what came to mind when you were saying that, would be Dan Bailey. If Dan Bailey starts <laughs> going his age at yeah. kicker and Vikings again – are struggling to find a kicker, so that could be another one. But kickers can kick till they're really old. So yes. I I don't know if that one would be as much age, but that was just another one that I thought of. Britton Colquitt, the punter, would be another one. But his value, as we discovered, really exists in him being a great holder for Dan Bailey. Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect a drop-off from any of these guys in particular. Um, yeah. 
And, and that's how fascinating it is with the NFL, how quickly things can change. You go from a team that feels like it's on the wrong side of the mountain, uh, and then all of a sudden you're looking at this year and next year as a team on the rise again, a team that's rebuilding up its roster, and all they need is some players from the 2019 and 2020 draft classes to step up, and they sure threw a lot of darts this year with the draft yes, class. So if you hit on three of these guys, three of the 15, four of the 15, all of a sudden your team is back to being competitive with a quarterback who's under contract and a lot of, I mean, if you end up hitting on the two first-round draft picks, you have got stars on rookie contracts and you can spend around them. Uh, Everything really over the next couple of years rests on how those draft classes perform but you are no longer in that space. It really turned quickly. You're no longer in that space of, well, you got some old guys. You got to win now. You have to do everything you can and take risky moves and stuff because these guys are about to fall off. Um, the Kyle Rudolph point is an interesting one. I think Rudolph is just going to be who he is. Maybe he'll be like 43 and he'll just be large <laughs> and they'll still be throwing him the ball uh, in the end zone for you know seven-yard touchdowns or something like that. Uh, even though he didn't rack up a ton of catches last year, he still gave them quite a bit of value. After this season, we'll see what the price versus what he brought was, but I think that there's still a lot to offer with him as well. So there isn't really one. If I had to pick one, Reef is the obvious one that I would circle first. And then everybody else seems like probably have at least this year and next year still in their primes, and you'd be surprised at a massive fall off. All right, Matt, that's all the questions we have. Okay, good job. Intern Paul, five questions as we do enjoy doing from time to time. Well, great job. And if you see any tweets you like from the Purple Insider Twitter, Paul is often behind those. So yeah, make sure free. to follow Purple so, Insider. Yeah. Uh, follow Purple underscore Insider. Thanks underscore. for that. Um, I have I have railed against on this show underscores, and then you come out and create the Twitter account with an underscore. It's fine. Uh, my, yeah, sorry. My personal well, account, it's, it's, it's habit, you know. I'm putting it on uh, your evaluation, your internship evaluation, yeah. which all right. I will definitely <laughs> be doing. Uh, all right, well, thanks for all your help, Intern Paul. Hope you enjoyed uh, our five questions. Feel free in the comments to leave any of your answers as well or uh, shoot us a tweet, and we'll talk to you next time on Purple Insider. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Gold. From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapino's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair. Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire.